This is HEC Media. Welcome to Talking with Authors, a program dedicated to speaking with some of the best-selling authors around, covering many different genres. I'm your podcast host, Rod Milam, for HEC Media. With the help of independent bookstore Left Bank Books and the St. Louis County Library, we're able to sit down with amazing writers and thought leaders to discuss their work, their inspiration, and what makes them special. By the way, you can also watch video versions of most of these interviews by going to hecmedia.org. After the initial weeks of the coronavirus global shutdown, we were able to set up remote video interviews with many authors, and in the coming weeks, we'll be providing you with the audio of these interviews. Now, sound quality may be slightly different than our previous podcast, but they all still contain the great content you've come to expect. Today, our writer is Wes Moore. We spoke with him via Zoom in July of 2020 about his most recent book, Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City, published by Penguin Random House. He's an author, combat veteran, and CEO of the Robin Hood Foundation, a top poverty-fighting nonprofit. Today, he'll be discussing the life and tragic death of Freddie Gray, a 25-year-old black man that suffered a fatal spinal cord injury at the hands of the Baltimore police in April of 2015. Moore's latest book examines the aftermath of this young man's death as told through the experiences of multiple people from different backgrounds. He also explores the many societal issues intertwined in this all-too-familiar story. I wanted to be clear that this was not the biography of Freddie Gray. What I wanted to do with this story was really talk about this city and what was happening in this city through the eyes of these eight people during these times and this interplay of race and poverty and all these other, all these other elements, but also understand that Baltimore and what was happening in the life of Freddie is also very indicative of what's happening in the lives of so many of our children. And where, when you look at the fact that he was so failed by the police system, it wasn't just that system that failed Freddie. Every system failed Freddie. That was just the final failure. We'll learn more about those systems and examine how they've affected a few of the people he chose to follow in his book. Wes Moore joins us now on this edition of Talking with Authors from HEC Media and HEC Books. Here's our host this time, Dr. Kira Banks. I'm really excited to be in conversation with Wes Moore, author of Five Days. He follows people from different backgrounds through the days after Freddie Gray's murder. And I know for me reading it, it was it was a hard read, yet an easy one, and that there's so many connections between St. Louis and Baltimore. So Wes, I'm really glad to be able to be in conversation with you. Well, listen, Dr. Banks, I'm, I'm so honored to be in conversation with you and, and thank you for this. And, 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 you know, not only do I think that there are tremendous parallels uh, between Baltimore and St. Louis, and, and really in many ways, you could just swap out the names Baltimore and St. Louis, and you're watching the exact same thing transpire over a five-day period. Um, but also, in many ways, I feel like without St. Louis, you don't have Baltimore. Mm. And what I mean by that is this, is that I think there was two big things that, that made the Freddie Gray story big. Um, and because people say, well, what was the difference between, Fre- why did Freddie end up right. taking on this bigger story? Then if you look at just the two, just the two years in Baltimore prior to Freddie Gray, there was Anthony Anderson, there was Chris Brown, there was Tyrone West, and so you had these other names of black men who end up having an interaction with police and then dead, 
right? And so they're like, so what was it about Freddie's story that triggered something different? And I think there was two things. Uh, one was the fact that that was one and the first one that was caught on camera, uh, where, where the idea of simply saying, well, they must have said something, or I'm sure that something was provoked, or whatever it is, or the one person's story versus another person's story, that gets complicated when there's video footage. That gets complicated because oftentimes when we're having these debates, you're talking about one person who can defend themselves and another person who can't because they're not around anymore to, to tell their side of the story. And I think the second really important point about what made Freddie different was this organization called Black Lives Matter, where Black Lives Matter started after Trayvon Martin by three black women and went from a hashtag to really a global movement who could mobilize and move quickly when these incidences happened around the, happened around the country. And so this went from the idea of Freddie Gray and where, again, where even in Baltimore this happened and we kind of knew the sequence. It happened, there was a payout, and then people moved on. That's kind of the way it worked. And with Black Lives Matter then descending upon Baltimore and these issues being risen and brought to a global stage, that was something very, very different. But again, that doesn't happen without Michael Brown. It doesn't happen without Ferguson. It doesn't happen if these things were not on the heels of each other. And so to be very honest, uh, you know, I think about two realities where uh, had it not been on camera and had it not been for Black Lives Matter, I don't know if we ever know the name Freddie Gray. I don't know if we ever get that takeaway from him. Yeah, and, and that's so real. And I feel similarly about Michael Brown, right? And so there's this, there's this way in which your book allows the reader to see so clearly those, those days after Freddie Gray's murder. And if you, are, if you were in St. Louis, if you were in Minneapolis, any of the hot spots, right? Where like you said, post Black Lives Matter, that, that you could see the thread of this movement, it feels like watching a tape play. There's so many connections. And so, you know, you frame the book kind of through what happened and what can change. And so that what happened piece to me felt very familiar, even down to, you talked about Freddie Gray's life story yeah. and his experience with lead poisoning. And so I wonder if there are things about his life that you learned writing the book that, that surprised you. I tell you, Dr. Banks, that, that was not just one of the most heartbreaking things about it. It was actually one of the things that made me want to tell the story. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to be clear that this was not the biography of Freddie Gray. Um, you know, what I wanted to do with this story was really talk about uh, this city and what was happening in this city through the eyes of these eight people during these times and this interplay of race and poverty and all these other, uh, all these other elements, but also understand that Baltimore and what was happening in the life of Freddie is also very indicative of what's happening in the lives of so many of our children. And where, when you look at the fact that he was so failed by the police system, it wasn't just that system that failed Freddie. Every system failed Freddie. That was just the final failure. And, uh, and, and we, you know, it was interesting because I was actually having a, a good conversation with, uh, with the editor 
uh, a guy named Chris Jackson, who was the, uh, the editor-in-chief for One World, who uh, you know, I've worked with in all, all the books I've ever done. And I remember he actually even placing together the book. And he actually said to me, he said, something's missing. He said, you need to ground the reader in Freddie's story uh, before we go in, because Freddie is almost this unspoken character in throughout the relation of these five days. Uh, and we did. And so at the start of the book, I wanted to put in a basic timeline of Freddie's life and let the reader start there. Let the reader start with an understanding that this was a young man who was born premature, born underweight, born addicted to heroin, that his mother lived in poverty her entire life. She could not read nor write. And when she gave birth to these twins, to Freddie and Frederica, uh, both of them fighting to survive in their earliest days on this earth. When they finally gained enough weight to leave the hospital, they moved into a housing project in West Baltimore. And that housing project in, uh, on North Cary Street, that and 480 other homes were actually named in a civil lawsuit uh, back in 2009 because of the endemic levels of lead inside of that home, where you know the CDC indicates that if a person has uh, five or more microbes of lead in every deciliter of blood, that person will have cognitive damage for the rest of their life. Freddie Gray had 36. And so here is a young man who was born underweight, premature, addicted to heroin, lead poisoned. And by that time in his life, he's two years old. And so the idea that, that people is to just work harder and they can get themselves out of poverty and they can, how hard would Freddie had to have worked? And, and I think about it in that week where he was in that coma. The week, the week after, you know, he made eye contact with police and was arrested and an hour later he was in a coma and then he stayed in a coma for a week until eventually he had his home going and never made it out of the coma. But one of the most heartbreaking things about me is, is, is especially going through the process of this book and going through the process of Freddie's story, is that that week that Freddie was in a coma might have been his most peaceful week on this planet. Mm. Because it was a week he was surrounded by doctors and nurses. It was a week he was surrounded by lawyers and activists. It was a week where the entire city knew his name. It was a week where the entire city cared whether he lived or died. Name one week prior to that week where that, all those things were the case. And that is what's so heartbreaking about this is as someone said, it's like, you know, we cannot just mourn his death. We also have to mourn his life and, and the, the life we asked him to live. Yes, yes. And the way in which, as you said, it wasn't just one system. Right. So as a psychologist, I very, very clearly understand the way in which cognitive deficits can come from lead poisoning, right? And so when I read that, I was blown away, blown away. So to have a child that is too exposed to that level of lead poisoning, we have, we have basically sentenced him to a life of special education. That's exactly right. You know, is underfunded and there are people who do amazing work but 
oftentimes kids end up falling out of the system, which is what happened to him. So I think about, as a psychologist, I think about that two-year-old that deserves so much more from his environment and didn't get it. That's right. And I think about the school system that, the the school systems that are not set up to serve black and brown children en masse, but in particular, those with special needs. That's exactly right. I think about those, those years that, like that point about those, that last week, those last days, getting the an amount of care that he'd never, never gotten and that he so deserved. That's sobering. And what gets me is that how many other names. And so one of the characters that you follow, I shouldn't say characters, she's a real person. One of the women that you follow, Tawanda, you know, her brother, the story of Tyrone, like she has been fighting for his name to be heard, for his story to be told. And so it's, it's a reminder, I, I really enjoyed the way that you wove people, different folk stories and perspectives to, t- to show us how, how connected these stories are and at the same time how disconnected our stories are and our realities yeah. are. Well, you know, and it's, uh, and, and I think about Tawana. Tawana was actually one of the first people when I decided that I want to go through this process that one of my first, uh, you know, things were Tawanda Jones is going to be included in this. Because she's someone who I, I, I saw from afar, and, I, and I've known Tawana for a while and admired, uh, and admired her work, and, but I always felt like, you know, that moment was a particularly special moment for Tawanda because everyone in Baltimore kind of knew her name, and she, we knew that there was this, this person who every Wednesday, every Wednesday, she protested. Every Wednesday, she had this thing called West Wednesdays, and it was all about her brother who died in police custody earlier. And the Gray family reached out to her early and said, you know, we would love your help. We, we see what you're doing for your brother. Uh, and we'd love to be able just to have, you know, have support. And she was right there to support the Gray family. She marched with them. She met with them. She prayed with them. But she always had this thing where she felt that I love the fact that Baltimore, I love the fact that my city is standing up. I love the fact that my city is now paying attention to the fact that we are having these incidents happen over and over and over again and people aren't doing anything about it. But she also feels a certain type of way inside where she says, but where was this when my brother was killed? Where was this when my brother was in the middle of the street covered with mace with boot prints all over his body? Where was this? And so you see how this evolution and this character arc with her over this five day period I just think was in many ways was one of the anchors that the entire book sat off of. And, and, and you know, one of the things I loved about telling these different stories and, and having these different pieces incorporated into it and even the character selection process, which is a fascinating process, um, but was each of them come from a very different place in life. Each of them are coming to this moment uh, with a very different perspective with a very different, you know, philosophical understanding, and frankly, with very different takeaways. But that I thought was the most interesting thing because that's what makes us all human, and that's what makes these incidents so, uh, you know, so real and so human in that way. Where we're oftentimes we're not going to come to the same conclusion, and we're oftentimes not going to come from the same same starting point either. Uh, but that's what makes journey so rich in that way that we can be able to understand and still tell those stories. Uh, where everybody sees themselves, no matter who you are, everybody sees a bit of themselves in these individual stories. I, and I really appreciated some of the choices you made in the selection. 
Um, I appreciated that that the rebuttal about black on black crime needing to be the focus came from a police officer, from a black police officer. And I also appreciated that some of the early articulation of systemic, systemic oppression came from a white man who was an owner, the owner of the Orioles in, in Baltimore. I really appreciated you bringing those voices in a way that, that maybe people might not have expected. Was that on purpose? It was, it was very much on purpose. And, and actually, and one of the reasons why I loved uh, each of these people that we followed um, is because they're all incredibly complex, right? So, so you're talking about someone like a Mark Partee who rose through the Baltimore police force. I mean, he's one of the highest ranking African-Americans in the Baltimore police force and comes from West Baltimore. And so he's having this crisis, this internal crisis in this moment where he's, you know, and as he said to me, he said, I know none of my colleagues woke up that morning with homicide in their mind. I know none of my colleagues woke up and said, you know, I'm going to kill somebody today. But he says, but I also know why for kids in West Baltimore, they don't believe me. So he understands this dynamic, and he's sitting in this strat, he's straddling these worlds that, that, that are, are nowhere near each other. But he has this unique capacity to be able to straddle both. And to your point, you know, the fact that one of the earliest people to challenge this, this bunk notion of, of well, you know, uh, you know African-Americans only care when it's police, but they don't care about it. He's like, that's foolishness. And this whole concept of black and black crime is nonsense. And that's coming from a police officer. Right. Or to your point about a John Angelos this is a person who is literally the son of the owner of the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, you know, of ex he's a, he comes from extreme wealth and extreme privilege. Uh, he's the head of baseball operations. He's the person who is, is one of the people who helped make the decision to play that game. The first time in baseball history that they played a game with no fans. He was one of the people who made the final decision to say, we're going to play this game because I want the world to see it. He's also one of the first people. And what brought him into the story in the first place was on the first day when people are, are, are condemning the people protesting downtown and condemning the people who are uh, rioting about what's going on. He's, he's one of the first people to step up and say, do you have any idea about the conditions that we have asked our citizens, our neighbors to live in? The, 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 the lack of jobs, the lack of opportunities, the systemic racism. Do you have any idea? any concept of what we are asking people to endure, how much pain we are asking people to endure. So it's like how the complexity for all of us, the complexity of race, the complexity of, 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 of the training that this nation uh, drills in each and every one of us, how that shows itself and showed itself over those five days was just a, a really fascinating process. And it reminds us of our own humanity, right? That we can't be too, we can't be too high mighty, right? What would you do? That right. your true colors end up showing and in terms of where you stand at times like this. And I say times like this because here we are again. And to me, um, when I was reading the book, one of the things that struck me is that the consequences though, were very different for the black folks that you followed. So I think about Parti, Greg, right? Like that, that the, the consequences of their actions, of standing up, they had to pay a price in the trajectory of their career and the trajectory of their life. Whereas the white characters were able to stand up and not have as much of a price to pay. That's right. I'm, I'm, so, I'm so glad you, you brought that up because 
Um, it was one of the most fascinating takeaways from all of that. Um, if you look at the arc of where people started on Saturday and where they ended up on Wednesday, um, there is a very clear line. And in fact, in the, in the, in the epilogue at the end, when I, I wanted to kind of give a what's happened since to these individuals, um, and I actually wanted to include, even though there was eight, I actually included a ninth and that was Baltimore. What's happened to the city of Baltimore in the past five years? And, uh, and you're absolutely right that when you think about the thread, about who was, who was doing markedly worse at the end of those five days, it's amazingly color-coded. It's amazingly color-coded when you see how the impact of those five days had on people in terms of their individual lives, in terms of their individual occupations and also in terms of their individual freedoms. Uh, where you look at the case of, 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 of Greg, for example, you know, a, a high school basketball star, a person who has dodged death and true heartbreak and heartache at so many different turns in his life. And as a young man who now, despite all that, turns into one of the best basketball players in the city of Baltimore, gets a college scholarship and in his first year, finds out that the Baltimore City public school system made a mistake on his GPA and he loses his scholarship. He had nothing to do with it. That was a systemic breakdown. And so now he finds himself in this situation where he is just angry and frustrated with the larger system because this system broke him in the most inhumane way. And so now, despite being a basketball star from a few years back, he's now on the cover of Time Magazine with a gas mask on riding a bike with his fist in the air, the iconic picture. And you see how the arc of him, where when he first started on the Saturday, and I, I won't give it away too much for, for the readers, but where he starts on the Saturday uh, in another state but basically saying as he's watching everything happen in Baltimore, I got to get home to the point of the Wednesday where he is just now, just a few months back, getting off probation for actions five years ago. Um, that's the type of thing when you think about consequences for what happened, the consequences for the African-Americans in this book, uh, you're, you're absolutely right, were, were definitely more, more stark and severe. And I think, and the, and the readers will see that. Yeah. And again, that was another moment where I felt like I was reading a, a, a similar chapter to the, to the book of Ferguson, because we similarly had folks who were on the front lines, who were nurses and lawyers and professors, and some of which were edge, some of um, whom were edged out of their jobs because they stood up. Others because of their actions, like you said, ended up on probation, you know, but in the meantime have gotten their advanced degrees. And, and it, it just makes me think about the, this piece of how books can be such a portal into helping you understand if you don't have proximity, right? To helping you understand how one break or lack thereof, right? Can completely shift people's lives. And do we want that? And then the, uh, the cumulative effect of systemic oppression, how that, that piles on in terms of people's lives and their experiences and compounds, compounds the impact of what you might only see 
you know, on the news, one act, right? But you don't see everything that came before. And so that's what I think you've done a beautiful job of is helping people understand the ways in which those systemic dynamics are not just one single act, that it is a compounding effect and that we as a society have built it, we've allowed it to continue and it brings us into accountability and responsibility to, to disrupt. Yes, and, 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 and you, that point is, a, it's a really important point because it gets us out of the S idea and this concept that somehow it's individual acts that are causing this or that it's individual acts that can get us out of it. And, and, and I think about, uh, you know, Anthony, uh, who is, you know, a, a, a store general manager for a roller skating rink in West Baltimore, but re a real community leader and a guy who focused on hiring people who no one else would hire. He hired the people who maybe they were dealing with an addiction problem. Maybe they had a record. Maybe they had tattoos and people were found them scary. And those are the people he hired because he knew this was the shot that they might need. And that's the kind of kid he was. And he, that, he knew how Shake and Bake helped save his life and he wanted to use Shake and Bake as a place to save other people's lives in West Baltimore. And you know, there was this powerful scene on, on, on the Tuesday where it was his day off, but he came into work anyway because this, the, the entire area around where Shake and Bake was, was burned out and you had stores looted and you had all this kind of stuff. And so he wanted to come and help do a cleanup and figure out how we can help. And he remembers watching this little girl with a broom and how she had work gloves on and the broom was basically as tall as she was and, and she was behind a reporter who was reporting on it, but she was just sweeping, just sweeping, doing her part. Um, and he said, you know, it was how he's talking about how it was important for all of us to do our part. And I think that's absolutely right. Um, but we also cannot fall victim to this idea that individual actions are enough to make up for systemic breakdowns. Um, that, that what we are seeing here is essentially these systemic breakdowns. And it's important even how that's incorporated into this conversation about race, where, where oftentimes people think racism is an act. Right. It's like, oh, I this person did X. Therefore, that is racism. You know, this person uses the N word. That is racist. This person goes to Klan rallies. That is racist. Yes. However, racism isn't an act. Racism is a system. Racism is a system that permeates every system that we have, that permeates our education system, that permeates our, our, our transportation and our housing system, that permeates our health systems. It's a system that allows the fact for a black college graduate to have the same wealth as a white high school dropout. It's the same system that allows a black woman with breast cancer to die at 42 times the rate as a white woman with breast cancer. It is a system. And so it goes back to this idea that we can't, we can't be lulled into this concept that that individual goodwill is going to be enough to break us out of this. You actually have to attack the larger challenges that are existing in so many of our communities. And that's really the thing that I was trying, you know, that I wanted to try to tell with five days is that as you're watching this, you're watching a lot of individual good acts, right? From, from top to bottom. You're watching a collection of eight people 
that are all good people. What system are we asking them to navigate through? What system are we asking them to move and maneuver in? And that is really the context that I want to try to set for the reader to understand where we have to spend our time and where we have to spend our energies. Wes Moore on the challenges pertaining to systemic racism in the United States. In just a bit, he'll share his thoughts on the need for truth and reconciliation. The history of race and racism, the fact that this country was founded on a racial hierarchy, and the fact that it's not just about slavery, when people say that was 100 years ago, no, because then it's Black Codes and it's Reconstruction and it's Jim Crow, and it's how this thing continued on. If we aren't willing to be honest about that, if we're not willing to embrace that, then these things that continue to pop up, they'll continue popping up and they'll get bigger and bigger and eventually swallow us because the only way to battle that is going to be truth and the only way to battle that is going to be unity. We'll hear about countries that have confronted the sins of their past, the role the media plays in how protests are perceived, and the true cost of allowing childhood poverty to continue as it has in the United States as our conversation continues with Wes Moore on Talking with Authors from HEC Media. Educate Today offers an ever-growing library of the highest quality video resources, curriculum materials, and interactive programs, all of which are designed to challenge thinking, inspire creativity, and empower learning of students, educators, parents, and lifelong learners. And you can find out more about all these programs by going online to educate.today. That's educate.today. What role do you see the media playing in this though? Because you talk a little bit about how the media portrayed part of the story or, or the angle. So in yeah. terms of what needs to happen differently to be able to address the system, what role does the media have in that? So I think, I think the media has an incredibly important role in terms of serving as a true educator and context provider. Um, you know, part of the challenge, and, and, and it, was, it was interesting following Nick, because Nick was one of the people who was most critical of this during, during, during the book uh, and during these five days where he was like, all they want to do is come and show burn buildings, right? And, 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 and it was, it was one, of the, one of the things I, I loved about this was kind of the, almost like the tension between characters who didn't even know each other, right. but the tension in their perspectives. So you're watching a John Angelos who feels like, the most aware and woke thing I can do is make sure that we're playing the game and play the game even if there's no fans there because it's sending a statement about what's going on. It's sending a statement about, about you know, where the city is. And then you have Nick, who's a city councilman at the time who's like, I think that was the most cowardice decision that they could have ever made to play the game with no fans because the image and the impression that it's giving to the world is that this city is broken and that black children broke it, right? And so it's completely different perspectives to a singular incident. And, and, and part of Nick's frustration with all that was actually the media, where he was saying the media keeps on showing the same images. They keep on showing, you know, the kids throwing rocks and they keep on showing this, but they're not showing the, 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 the living conditions that the kids are in. They're not showing the, the fact that the kids can't drink water from the water fountains in the schools because they are, because they are tainted with lead. They're not showing the fact that, they're, that the public transportation system, the feeble public transportation system that was already in existence in Baltimore at that time, but that Monday afternoon, how it was shut down 
And so what ended up happening was you had kids essentially who were trapped inside of this area. So you have kids who are trapped in a very tense standoff with police officers in riot gear. What exactly do you expect to happen? And so, so it, was, it was interesting seeing there the role that, that he felt it was playing in terms of fanning, fanning this anger, fanning the frustration, fanning this, and, and also telling us who's to blame. But also the important thing, I think the, the role that media has is media has the biggest pulpit out there. And so media can actually play a really powerful role when it comes to helping to add context, helping to add history, helping to add fact. You mentioned at the, at the end of the book, uh, in terms of a way forward, the idea of truth and reconciliation, yeah. and that many other communities, nations have engaged in that process. Do you see that as something that's possible in the United States? I think it's something that's imperative in the United States. I, I, don't, I don't think the U.S. has a choice uh, if, we're, if we're really actually going to, going to address this. And, um, you know, one thing I really wanted to do with this story uh, and really do with five days is I feel like just with ever, like with everything else is uh, I want to make sure that we're being, we are being very solutions oriented. It's the, it's the so what do we do? How do we address this? How do we, let's just not just talk about the problems, but talk about things that, that need to be fixed. Um, I feel like it's going to be impossible for us to move forward if we also don't understand how we got here in the first place. And when you're looking at the dynamics that exist right now, race is one of the most reliable predictors of, of life outcomes across several areas, you know, including life expectancy, academic achievement, income, wealth, physical, mental health maternal mortality, right? Race is one of the most reliable predictors. And when we think about that, uh, our ability to be honest and stare at some of our deepest and our darkest and our ugliest wounds and be able to say, how does that matter in terms of how we're gonna move forward is gonna be incredibly important. Uh, you know, the fact that there are other nations who have done this. You know, we have had uh, truth and reconciliation processes that have taken place everywhere from South Africa to Chile, to Canada twice, to Northern Ireland, to Colombia. I, I took a trip to, we took a family trip to Colombia um, six months ago, and we went to Medellin. And it was fascinating. I'm fascinated by the history of Medellin because Medellin, two, three decades ago, was the most, literally the most violent city in the world, where it was thousands of bodies every single year that were being taken. And now in 2015, it was actually named by the Wall Street Journal as the most innovative city in the world. And so I'm asking, so how do you, within a process of a generation, go from the most violent city in the world to the most innovative city in the world? And part of what they were able to do was they were able to be very deliberate about understanding their past, but know that the only way not to be enslaved by your past is to actually embrace it and to talk about it. And, and the, the, I went to this one museum, it was called El Museo de, del Memoria. It's this uh, fascinating museum in the middle of Medellin. And you walk into this one room and it almost looks like a planetarium. It's really interesting, it's, it's really funky, but you have these lights that are going on and off and so it looks like stars. But as you move into the room and as you get closer, you realize those aren't stars, they're pictures. 
and they're pictures of families, they're pictures of people, and they're like, it's a family together. And then the family's all in color. And then immediately, everybody goes black and white in the picture except for one person. That person who is still in color was either killed or is still missing. In this thing, and they have thousands of pictures. They don't say what side they fought on. They don't say what happened. They just want to highlight the fact that this was a person. This was a father. This was a son. This was an aunt. This was a grandmother. This was a child who's now missing, who's now no longer part of this unit. And it really, you stand there and it's one of the most emotional experiences that I know I'd had and I had my children with me because it just reminds you about the pain and the trauma that this caused in Medellin, but the fact that they actually had the courage to say, but the only way we can move on is actually if we're willing to understand it, embrace it, and come up with a collective way to move forward on it. And the history of race and racism, the fact that this country was founded on a racial hierarchy, and the fact that it's not just about slavery, when people say that was 100 years ago, no, because then it's Black Codes and it's Reconstruction and it's Jim Crow, and it's how this thing continued on. And I don't say that to play gotcha with people. I don't say that because I want to play I told you so. And I hear people when they make the argument, they say, well, that was something, you know, why am I being punished for something that my ancestors did? The, the answer is, is because we're still being punished for what your ancestors did. If we aren't willing to be honest about that, if we're not willing to embrace that, then these things that continue to pop up, they'll continue popping up and they'll get bigger and bigger and eventually swallow us because the only way to battle that is going to be truth. And the only way to battle that is going to be unity. So we've talked about how all of these systems are connected and it, it, it just brings you back to your point about the last system that Freddie had contact with was, was the police criminal justice system. But you know, we also know that two-year-old Freddie with the lead poisoning and, and then the, the, the childhood Freddie and living in poverty, he needed help. We need to think about what we need to be doing for him as well. Your work at Robin Hood focuses a lot on childhood poverty. What do we need to be doing in that area? Yeah. So, you know, if we look at the impacts of childhood poverty, childhood poverty costs this nation every year over a trillion dollars. Childhood poverty costs this nation over a trillion dollars every single year. And, and, and when people say, well, where does that number come from? It comes from a few different places. Uh, and it comes from this idea of the amount that we will spend on remediation, the amount that we will spend on criminal justice systems and juvenile justice systems, when you're looking at this complete overlap and overlay of services and supports for children who are living in poverty and the probability that a child who was born into poverty will also die in poverty, that this idea of economic mobility that we have within this country, we've now gotten to a point that right now it is less than a coin flip that your children will do better than you. And that a child who's born in poverty, much less than a coin flip that that child will actually end up out of poverty. 
And so there are things that we know are going to have significant impacts on that right now that also are not going to have and would not have significant economic impacts on our society. In fact, it only have increases in economic activity and, and, and increases in economic participa participation. So, for example, you know, there is we have known that lead is a neurotoxin for over a century. And we continue to think about the way that we treat it in a very class and color based way. In many communities around the country, they're not worried about their children drinking lead from the water. They're not worried about their children having lead, uh, having lead paint that they're ingesting. But for Freddie and for many other kids who are growing up in poverty around the country, uh, that's a real thing. How are we thinking about things like enhancements to the child tax credit, where we have a platform and a program that is exclusively focused on being able to support children, being able to support families, that find themselves living in poverty. But despite the fact that we currently know right now that 54% of black children do not receive the child tax credit. And we also know the need for it has exploded due to COVID-19. So adjustments we can make things like making the child tax credit fully refundable, advancing the child tax credit, then pay it out in monthly installments, lock in improvements until the economy recovers to make changes retroactive, to deliver cash quickly to children and families who need it most. These are all things that we know from a policy perspective we can do tomorrow. You know, making adjustments to the child tax credit, for example, we could end deep child poverty in a stroke of a pen. The question becomes, do we have the will? And for the people who are going to benefit from that, for the pathways we are going to create, do they have the voice? And if not, how are all of us going to provide that voice for them? Absolutely. Well, I, I appreciate your time and, and you sharing your expertise and how effortlessly you wove together these perspectives to give us a sense of not only the five days after Freddie Gray's murder, but also what we need to be learning in terms of our history and what comes next so that we can be a part of disrupting these systems and, and dismantling the system of racism, basically, that contributed to his loss of life. So I thank you so much for, for the conversation. I thank you for this conversation and I thank you for this work. And I'm hopeful and I'm grateful because this moment, uh, we're all asked to be better. And, and I believe we will. That's Wes Moore as we spoke with him in July of 2020 about his latest book, Five Days, The Fiery Reckoning of an American City, from publisher Penguin Random House. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Talking with Authors. Remember, you can watch most of the episodes of this program by going online to hecmedia.org. Also, be sure to follow us on social media. Just search for Talking with Authors on all social media platforms. And if you haven't done so yet, please rate and review this program wherever you get your podcasts. The producer of the video version of this program was Christina Chastain. Our host was Dr. Kira Banks. Editors were Christina Chastain and Greg Kopp. Supervising producer was Julie Winkle. Production support by Jane Ballou. HEC Media Executive Director is Dennis Riggs. The Talking with Authors podcast executive producer is Christina Chastain. Podcast audio editing by Ben Smith. This podcast episode producer is Paul Langdon. And I'm your host, Rod Milam. Special thanks to St. Louis County Library and Left Bank Books. Again, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next time. This is HEC Media. You wake up, you get dressed, you prepare for a day of challenging and inspiring young minds. But maybe all you get is frustration and anxiety. You are a teacher. 
In the Classroom Matters podcast, we discuss the good, the bad, and the ugly of education. We talk to people such as Kim Bearden, co-founder of the Ron Clark Academy, Ken Williams, creator of Unfold the Soul, Teacher of the Year Beth Davey, and so many more insightful educators. Because your voice matters, your experience matters, your classroom matters. Classroom Matters with Christy Hool, a new podcast from Educate.today. Subscribe and download now.